Here we go. Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome back to the Investing Experts Podcast by Seeking Alpha. Of course, here I am, Daniel Snyder, Austin Hanquist. We are here. We're so glad that you guys are coming to hang out during this time as we record this episode. We've got Balu, we got Elsie, Jessica, Michael, everybody showing up right now. Robert, Batten, Cigar, we see you all. We got a great show today, don't we, Austin? I'm excited. I'm thoroughly, thoroughly excited. Lots of fun conversations. A really cool company. A couple of cool companies will be discussed. Awesome guest. Excited to jump into it. And happy new year, everyone. Happy, happy new year. I'm so excited to be ringing in the new year with everyone here uh, in this episode. And we're filming this on a green day. How fun yeah. is that, right? Good yeah. luck. Uh, interesting start to the year. I mean, re- remember, we're one year away now from January 3rd of last year when we, we saw the market hit its top. Had, a, had an incredible 2020 all over the place. Now, man, we can talk about the earnings of what people are expecting on the street versus what personal investors are. I mean, there's so much to talk about. There's so many different guesses about is the market going to drop in the first half of the year? Is it going to rally in the second half? What's going on with the Fed? There are so many opinions getting dished out right now. I got to ask you real quick, Austin, though, like, where are you? What what, what camp are you I'm, I'm sort of in the bucket of I don't think that the economy has yet to kind of see that bottom. I still think we're going to see some sort of economic thunderstorms. Uh, if that's unemployment rising about a percentage or percentage and a half, if that is people's, uh, you know, we, we saw record high credit card debt hit almost a trillion dollars. We're seeing savings rates very low. Like, I just, I think that there's a lot of things that have yet to really materialize in our economy that could be poorly reflected in company earnings, right? And so as those begin to materialize in the actual earnings reports, if that's Q2, Q3, Q4, that's when I begin, we'll see like, okay, maybe the bottom now is in, right? But I'm in the boat of like, call it the next nine months, I think we'll really see that that bottom volatility. But I would imagine going into perhaps Q4 of 2023, we'll begin to maybe turn the curve. But we will see. We will Just see. Higher for longer, right? I mean, we were just talking a few weeks ago about additional layoffs. I was, I was saying, I expect more layoffs in January, right? What did we get this morning? 10% of Salesforce laying or announcing layoffs for mm-hmm. restructuring. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's done, right? We've got a little ways to go. We yeah. got the goals numbers this morning. Job openings are rising again. Now it's 10.5 again, right? So we see this vision. So, I mean, it's just like, what a crazy time. Obviously, higher for longer. Everything Powell has been saying, don't fight the Fed. It's going to be an interesting first half of the year. That's for sure. So let's go ahead and kick things off. Get out of the way with the show disclosure. Obviously, all opinions by ourselves and our guests on this show are strictly our opinions. They're not research advice. We're here for entertainment. We talk about what we see. But obviously, do your own research, talk to your financial advisor, invest smarter, if I can recommend that. Anything we say, if we say something's a buy, don't trust us, don't follow us, right? Like We're, we're a couple guys on the internet. We're a couple guys in your headphones, right? We are yeah. not the, the person with a suit and tie sitting down with you, going through everything. We're just giving you our ideas. We're just trying to have some fun. We don't know your you personal guys... situation. Exactly, we don't know risk, exactly. you know everything. So there's so much that goes into it. So just to get that out of the way. Also, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all your favorite listening stations. Go leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you like, what you don't like. Uh, we appreciate that. And let us know uh, how we can help you further with the, the research and, and the conversations that we have here on Investing Experts Podcast. Um, now, let's dive into it. This is a weird time. This is actually, let's give the updates, right? 
For everybody that's here with us right now, we love that you're here. But unfortunately, this is going to be the last live episode of Investing Experts Podcast. It is going to be transitioned into a recording of interviews with contributors and marketplace authors and more of just the smart minds of the investing community world coming to you here through podcasts. It will be audio only going forward. Had to get that out of the way. Austin will be leaving me as co-host. Unfortunately, it makes me very sad, but there's a lot of cool stuff that he has going on with Cashflow Freaks. And I've got to, let me just, let's just tease it, right? You have this idea that you put out and you're going to do the $2 million portfolio. Why don't you just give people a rundown of what's going on with that? hundred percent. So like, like Daniel said, right, this is going to be the last live episode. Uh, I really enjoy the live episodes. I enjoy getting back to everyone in the comment section. And I mean, I always, I see Balu here getting back to us on, you know, wishing us happy new year. I think that's so fun, but things have changed a little bit. Uh, and because of that, I just will not be uh, coming back for the, uh, the, the concluding episodes here. But um, with that being said, I'm still on Seeking Alpha, right? I'm publishing to the public and I'm also publishing to my own marketplace called the Cashflow Freaks. The Cashflow Freaks is very focused on those cash flowing companies, those free cash flowing companies that are paying dividends, raising their dividends, and so much so that I have like narrowed down and just completely laser focused in building my own $2 million dividend growth portfolio. I am hyper obsessed right now with passive income. And with that being said, you know, we, we just talked about 2023 being this like economic thunderstorm. We don't really know what the stock market's going to do. With that being said, I do think it though, it's a, it's a pretty fair assumption to think that some companies are going to experience that volatility. And when they do, I want to be the first to act to invest into those wonderful companies paying wonderful, wonderful dividends. So the goal here for me personally, and that's the thing, right? This is all just me. I, this is my uh, portfolio, my truth, my understanding. And if you want to come along for this journey, this eight, 10, 12 year journey of working toward a $2 million portfolio, hang out with us. We're hanging out over the cash flow freaks. And so the portfolio is pretty simple, right? It's broken down by a couple of specific segments. Uh, one is those dividend growth stocks. I'm talking Home Depot and Lowe's and uh, Taiwan Semiconductors and Broadcom and companies like that, companies we've talked about here on the show. And then on the other side, you also kind of have those special circumstances. Maybe those are those uh, covered call, uh, you know, uh, when is this uh, QQQX, I believe, or JEPI or SCHD, all these really fun, interesting um, little ETFs and, and uh, different types of funds of that nature. And then also technology and healthcare, things of that nature that, that are like the Apples, uh, like your Microsofts, these companies that are paying dividends, but they're growing in these insane secular growth trends that we can't ignore. So if you want to be part of that, check out the Cashflow Freaks. Uh, I'm sure we'll have some sort of link in the description or somewhere in the show notes here, but I'd love to welcome all of you with open arms. And I'm really excited to build a long 8, 10, 12 year journey toward financial independence with all of you guys listening. Yeah, I can't so encourage much. you guys enough. I mean, go take the free trial over Cashflow Freeze. Get in. You I mean, Austin's there communicating with you all the time. He's not going anywhere. He's still on site, still doing the great research that he provides to everybody. Stephanie over here in the chat says, I am loving it, Austin. So just wanted to give a shout out to you guys. Obviously, Balu, thank you. He says, good luck to Austin. Stay, uh, Stefan says, we'll miss the live interactions. We're going to miss you guys. We really will. But hopefully you'll continue to listen to the podcast. Obviously, we're still, the goal is to provide you with like, industry research that normally you would have to pay thousands of dollars for, right? Like that is my personal goal is I want to deliver some great insights, some great different thoughts, or, you know, you never know where that weird piece of data, that data point, right? That somebody was like reading or researching, they bring it to the conversation. And you're just like, oh man, okay. That changes my stop loss target. That changes everything. Right. Um, 
So what is the link, Austin? Let's go ahead. There you go. Boom. On top of it. Didn't even Boom. have to in right the chat. There. That's my whole Seeking Alpha profile. You can find research that I've shared. Uh, we, we talk about a couple of companies on there. I think I talked about Dutch Bros and Hims and Hers, uh, two companies that we've also talked about here on the show. Uh, really inspired those posts. So you guys got to see some, uh, some research before everyone else there. But uh, the Cashflow Freaks is also listed out there. So feel free to go check that out. Trial it. Cancel it if you don't like it. No hard feelings. It's, it's all good. I just want to be hanging out with people that uh, who have similar values and, and investing uh, perspectives. And so I'm, I'm excited to welcome everyone with open arms. Yeah. And I'm also excited to announce that you're not completely going away from us. That's the thing, too. I'll be back. I'll be back. We're, we're back hanging out. Podcast as an author that I get to interview periodically. So it's going to still, you're still going to be in the conversation, right? So I just go ahead and recommend to everybody go over to seekingalpha.com, search for Investing Experts Podcast, give us a follow there so that you get every episode there. Or like I said, subscribe, follow on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen so that you can get every episode. So, all of the housekeeping being out of the way, let's get into our special guest that I've, I've been talking to this guy for months. I mean, this guy, not only does he have a remarkable story, which we're going dive to dive into in here in a second, um, his returns are phenomenal. Like, can I mention that he is in the top 1% uh, over on tip ranks? Like, talk that about- That is so powerful. impressive. Like, so impressive. And you know how hard that, that like, is to do, right? Oh, I do. Yes. I, I'm worried that people listening don't know how hard that is. Like, that is in insane 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 so without further ado i would like to introduce to the show for this episode raul shah raul why don't you join us on screen here i've got so many questions for you i want to dive into these two recent articles that you published on seeking alpha as well and well let's just start off this way give us a little quick background of your investing journey how'd you get started obviously tell the people about i mean you play baseball professionally you invest on the side you do it off season give us the full rundown man yeah well first i'd like to extend a thank you to everybody seeking alpha yourself josh austin just for having me on i'm really happy to be here and i'm excited um, yeah, going back to what you said about my background. So I started playing baseball at a pretty young age and uh, I do play professionally. I play for a minor league team called the Maryland Blue Crabs. And uh, I live a little bit uh, in between Baltimore and Washington, D.C. I started investing. I bought my first stock when I was 19 and I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but I knew that I learned very well doing things sort of hands on. And so I had a lot of guidance from my parents and they basically gave me some money to just invest for them. Now I wasn't really making my own decisions. I was more or less talking with my dad. He would give me ideas and then I would go and sort of buy the stocks that we uh, talked about. And then as I got more comfortable, I started learning a little bit more. I started taking more unilateral control of the portfolios and making my own decisions, sort of allocating the funds as I saw best fit. Um, I would say 2018 is when I took over full control of the portfolios. And that's when I started writing on Seeking Alpha. The first stock I ever wrote about was Dick's Sporting Goods. And since that time in five years, I've earned 25% a year and I earned 19% uh, in 2022, which beat the NASDAQ by 50%. So that was a good test year. You know, my, my father and, and a lot of people would always say, hey, look, you know what, you made money in, in a bull market, but that's not really that difficult necessarily. Can you do it in a bear market? And so last year was a very good example of that. And I expect that to continue into the future. 
That is incredible. We all know how Dick's Sporting Goods has. I think we even did a whole episode on them, Daniel, right? Or yeah, maybe it was Academy, Academy Sports, Sports and Dick's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we definitely know that Dick's Sporting Goods, I mean, up and to the right, right? So that is good, good eye there. Um, this is exciting. I'll let Daniel kick things off with questions, and I'm sure I'll chime in with uh, some interesting perspectives. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and get things started. So I've got a few things I pulled specifically for this episode that we just got to we got to dive into. Hold on one second. Let me make sure that I start on the right page here, because this is your returns, right? So the, this is something that you just published on Seeking Alpha yesterday, and it's worth showing the actual graph that kind of shares what your rate of return has been. Right. So when we talk about you're the 1% on tip ranks, I mean, this is it right here. Obviously, Dow Jones, NASDAQ, S&P 500 had a horrible year last year. And uh, I mean, you definitely are producing some alpha. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, how did how did you talk about the journey of your dad and, and selecting stocks and, and getting into it? But like you've been doing it for so long now. Right. How are you still finding the stocks today? that are interesting to you to the point where you're like, oh, these are the stocks for the next 10 years? Yeah, that's such a great question. I, I think, uh, and I heard this first from Chuck Carnival, who, you know, does uh, runs fast grass. And you know, he always talks about, you know, it's not a stock market, it's a market of stocks. And when you shift your thinking in that regard, you really start to look at things a lot more appropriately. And you start to realize that in a market of stocks, there are good stocks, bad stocks, average stocks at any given point in time, whenever you look at it. And so you just keep your eyes open for maybe things that you use in real life or what people are talking about in comments, um, you know, or what they send in messages or social media or whatever. And you can discover companies that way. And you're going to have a lot more misses than hits in the sense that, you know, I probably might pick one out of every hundred companies that I think actually looks good. There are certain things that I look for and we can talk about that later, but you know, you're, you're not going to find a hundred good companies immediately. You know, you find certain uh, uh, areas or certain companies that you think will do really well and you evaluate them further and you don't need a lot of companies to really go big. I mean, I own three stocks in my portfolio I typically have owned three to five at any given point in time, and I don't really go above that. Do you like specific sectors, though? Do you have a screener? Like, what is you, you talk about social media? Is it just kind of like you mentally think about what comes up in conversation? Do you personally use products? Like, what what's the 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 method behind the madness? Yeah, that's a good question too. I think the first thing is you have to know what the company does, and so I'll give you an example that I think will answer the question. Hims and Hers Health, right? A stock that we are planning on talking about, and, and that Austin is has written uh, on very well. I found Hims and Hers Health, this is a true story. There was a, a gentleman who left a comment on one of my articles and it was a very nice comment. I just thought it was kind, it really made my day. And so I clicked his profile and I was looking at some of his other comments. And in the one basically right underneath, he had commented something about this company called Hims, and he was very bullish on this company. And I'd never heard of it. And so I had looked up the, the stock and I thought, oh, wow, this actually looks very compelling. Let me do further research. And so that's sort of an example of how I found a stock that is currently my biggest position off of somebody who I've never met on the internet who just happened to mention it in the comment. Gotcha. And so, I mean, you, so backtrack a little bit, you mentioned Hims and Hers Health, and this is one of the stocks that we wanted to talk to you today about based off of your recent article, but you've written four articles on this company in 2022 alone. Like you've been on this company for a while. Um, so why don't we just go ahead and dive in? I wanted to, to share as well that, I mean, 
uh, let me see, I'm a little bit backwards here. So you go in and you, you're saying that you own what nearly you shared 50,000 shares is what you currently own of hims and hers, just for full disclosure for everybody that's listening. So obviously you are a shareholder. You've been in this one for a while. Um, what's the bull case here? What's the bear case? What's the base case? Yeah. So the let's start with the the base case. Hims is a telehealth company. They basically provide a really convenient service for a lot of patients where certain stigmatized disorders, people don't feel comfortable going to a doctor. Maybe they feel embarrassed. Maybe they don't have a doctor nearby. Maybe the wait list is really long, all kinds of reasons. And so it's very convenient to be able to log into your phone, get a consultation with the physician and do it right on your screen. And then if it's appropriate, you get a prescription and then you can fill it uh, very conveniently and uh, discreetly. And that's a very big value proposition. And from the reviews of people who use the app, which are phenomenal, the app has a 4.8 star rating in the app store. Clearly, they're actually making a big difference in people's lives. And that's that's a really important thing. I think Jeff Bezos one time in an interview talked about how do you pick, the, somebody asked him, how do you pick the right stocks? And his response was, think about the companies that will make the biggest impact. And clearly, Hims is making a big impact. So as of right now, they're not profitable, but they have inch closer towards profitability every single quarter. And they're right on the brink. In fact, they're supposed to be EBIT positive next quarter. That's the start. Once you're EBIT positive, now you can work on that bottom half of the income statement and you can become net income positive or free cash flow positive. And that's when the ball really starts to get rolling. And I think once they prove that, that's when the stock will really take off. Bear case, of course, is as with any stock, the, you know, the sales don't materialize. Um, you know, they, they burn too much cash or they have too much debt, but you don't see that with this company. They have zero debt. They have $200 million in cash. They have 200 million shares. And so essentially you're getting $1 of cash in return to you with every share that you buy. So almost every share right now is trading at a 15% discount. Those that's a quality of a really good company. You know, it's, it's, I, I kind of laugh because people say, well, this company's going bankrupt. I say, well, look, you, you can't go bankrupt if you don't owe anybody any money. If you don't have debt, the only way that they would go bankrupt is if they burn through all the cash that they have, but their cash burn rate is smaller than the free cash flow that they're actually generating. And so you have a lot of positives here. Their sales are going ballistic. They're doubling their sales every single year. Sales are 20 times expected to be 20 times higher in Q4 than they were four years ago. That's a massive improvement. So you've got all these uh, factors that really have a strong case that this stock is going to go much, much higher in the future. Awesome. I'd love you to jump in here too, because you obviously are in the, in the bull case boat for this company as well. I mean, we've talked about this one before. Um, I guess my question for both of you as well is why would there be 12% short interest on this stock if, if it seems like everything, if the stars are aligning? So, um, and I'd be happy to, for the people listening now uh, to reintroduce, you know, I, got, I pulled up the script from a couple of weeks ago, uh, so I could, I could certainly do that. But, you know, as it relates to the short interest, in my opinion, I think there's like this spell casted upon investors of like, oh, it's a SPAC. It's worthless, right? Because we've seen that time and time and time and time again with several, several SPACs that have gone from 10 to 20, 30, 40, $50 down to $1. Or I mean, I mean, we, we've talked about this several times. And so I, I think, you know, as being categorized as a SPAC, they have something to prove, right? People are just lumped them in, oh, it's an expect, I don't want it. And so short, short, short. But I mean, uh, for, I, I can't really think of any other big blaring red flag coming from this company. I mean, think about it like this, right? And, and, and I have this near the bottom of my, um, the post that I had shared, you know, this is, 
everything an aggressive investor is looking for, right? Disruptive technology. Uh, they're flipping healthcare on its head. Uh, massive total addressable market. Predictable subscription revenue, right? 90% of quarterly revenue is predictable subscription revenue. Those juicy gross profit margins, nearly 80%. They're exceeding expectations during a potential recession, aka 2022. They're flipping free cash flow positive in 2023. Um, everything about this company seems strong and awesome. So I don't really see a reason for short interest besides, I guess, trading algorithms and maybe you can kind of predict the, you know, here and there. But from a call it, two, three, five, six, six, seven year time horizon, their stocks to short certainly over those times. And this isn't one of them, in my humble opinion. Raul, what is your thought on that? Yeah, I thought that was, I thought you hit the nail on the head there, Austin, with a lot of just the stuff about the, the stock qualities in general, like the margins and recurring revenue and all that kind of stuff. I don't know the specific reason of why so many people would be shorting such a stock like this. I mean, I think there is definitely truth to the SPAC. I actually read an article about that uh, for the first time I ever realized that maybe that could be part of it, a perception of, hey, this is a SPAC and, you know, we, we don't want to own this stock for whatever reason. I think quite honestly, you have a lot of day traders who, you know, maybe see the price action has gone down from 25 to it was 272 was below. Maybe they think, oh, you know what? Every time we get a balance that goes down, maybe they're looking at chart patterns and they're seeing, uh, you know, we can make some money riding this thing down. It could be something like that. They're going to get slaughtered in the long run. They're not going to make money on this. You might make money on this for a week, for a month, but in 10 years, there's no shot that this company, if it keeps executing the way that it does, is going to be lower than the price it is now. It's a steal. So, you know, you can have fun in the short term, but ultimately that short interest is going to vanish. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I did say uh, that the days to cover is like nine days though. So I wouldn't expect a short squeeze, right? Um, so Austin, you had mentioned the reoccurring subscription revenue and Raul, you wrote about this as well. And this is actually something I pulled directly from your article that you put out. Um, I, I want to play devil's advocate here because you guys are leaning into the subscriptions, but it looks like in Q3 of 2022, obviously we've seen 8% year over year growth in, in the subscriptions and they're growing subscriptions. But if that's only $991,000 and their overall quarterly revenue was $145 million, I mean, doesn't that's such a small percentage of their overall revenue for the quarter. Is there an actual playbook where you guys see this growing substantially? Like, how do you wait, 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 can you say that again? Did you, what did you say? I that think again? that's subscription. Yeah, that, right? those are people. Yeah, those are oh, uh, 991,000 okay. gotcha. people. Who are well, okay. So I am, I am one of those 991, right? I have my uh, finasteride subscription or prescription rather through hims and hers. I don't want to lose my hair. It used to be through keeps and now it's on hims. And so, uh, yeah, 991,000 people. You can compare that now to 157,000 or 190,000, right? Like it has grown exponentially. When they made their public debut in 2020, it was around 250,000, I believe. Um, yeah, right there about that 218, 250 range. And now it's nearly quadrupled, right? That makes so much more sense. Because I was Actually, like, this and, does and not add up. <laughs> Yeah, interesting too is that just anecdotally speaking, in the clubhouse, you know, uh, I, I've seen guys actually bring out various Hims products, and so it's it's sort of interesting because I know the company, I've seen the subscriptions and how much they're going up, and then I'm seeing in real life people actually using those products. And again, it's anecdotal, but it's some merit there that there's proof that this is really growing. 
Yeah. So let's get in over here to the chat for a little bit because we're getting some uh, interaction from Denise. Obviously, Denise is here. She says Zero Debt. That's a company that will probably get acquired. I mean, we talked about Amazon, CVS. You're talking about all these other companies that are in this space. And obviously, you know, you make the argument that this company needs to grow rapidly. They're trying to get to profitability. I mean, they have 190 something million dollars of cash, not a lot of debt, right? So it's like, do you see this eventually being a company that gets acquired within the next few years? Let me just ask that. Yeah, it's hard to say, right? I mean, it it, it seems like a company that's is uh, you know founder led and as passionate as they clearly are when you listen to their earnings calls uh, and you follow their social media accounts, it, it would seem unlikely that they would spend their whole lives doing this just to you know up and give it away to somebody, especially when they see the potential of it now. Of course, anything is possible. I mean, you look at Instagram as an example. I mean, that was a company that was privately owned and then ultimately Facebook, uh, you know, bought it and Instagram is you know, such a huge thing now. So it's hard to say, you know, either way, if, if it does happen or if it doesn't, I think investors will probably get a big payout. Gotcha. And then Balu's over here going through the metrics. Price of sales is the highest in the healthcare industry for HIMS. Um, and then also earnings beat the consensus only in the last two eight of two of the last eight quarters. I, I haven't fact-checked that. Do you guys have any commentary on that? Yeah, so- Yeah, the earnings beat every- Oh, sorry, go ahead, Austin, you go ahead. I, I was just gonna say, it's so like price to sales being the highest in the healthcare industry. I, I, I don't know the median um, gross profit margin for the healthcare industry, right? But hims and hers is like software company margins, right? 80 or 80% or so. So I'd imagine that probably has something to do with why they're trading at a premium. Um, for, for the rest of the industry, I'll, I'll take a look and, and see if I can find more about that. But if I were to guess, that's probably the reason why it's trading so high. Yeah, their price to sales is two and a half. And you got to put it in perspective. For, that's relatively not very high. Two and a half, you're getting a company that's doubling revenue every single year, that's got 200 million in cash on the balance sheet, that has no debt, that's hiring people, that's got insiders buying shares. For all that you're getting, two and a half times sales is not that high of a price to pay. Now, I don't typically like that ratio because it's not the top line that manages the bottom. But when it's that extreme, it does sort of highlight a potential value play. And um, what was um, there was another question before something else about. Uh, oh, yeah, the earnings. The company's beaten earnings every single quarter. Wall Street has extremely underestimated every single quarter how much income that they're going to produce. In fact, I actually in an article compiled uh, a table of all the Wall Street uh, expectations, the company's own expectations, and then what my forecasts were. And even the company and Wall Street both underestimated every single quarter. So their sales are, are going through the roof and they're, they're doing really well. And I don't think that's going to stop because they achieved all of this primarily without their mobile app. They, people were just going on the internet and, and logging in and, and signing up for stuff. Now that they have an app, it's so much more accessible. So I think the sales are only just getting started. I think it's this is going to carry on for a long time. Austin, can I ask you, you mentioned you're one of the, the, the reoccurring subscribers to their products. I mean, did you start doing that via the app or were you doing that before they launched the app this last year? So I did it starting with the app. So I started with Keeps, right? Another one of these like healthcare companies um, back in 2018, 2019. I hated the experience. They didn't have an app. So I had to use a website on my phone and it just like never worked well, right? It wasn't mobile optimized. And then once I saw that Hims and Hers launched an app, I immediately downloaded it and the prices were very similar, ended up just moving on over. And uh, it's been sort of, uh, you know, fairy tale ever since. I mean, it's been 
really simple, really awesome. And, and it's, it's just super and incredibly easy. I've never used the app though. I'll admit I haven't used it for anything beyond that. Right. It's just like my subscription. Uh, so like, I'm not over here getting, you know, my, my flu consultations, or if I'm like using it beyond just the subscriptions, I'm sure people do that, but it's just not been my uh, experience yet. Gotcha. Just had, I was a little curious. All right. So let's dive back into it. Raul, I got to go back to you. Cause I was going to ask you this as well. So obviously we're talking about hands. We're talking about telehealth. When people hear the, that they usually think of teledoc. And uh, in your article, you said due to HEMS competitive advantages, I believe its revenue will surpass Teladocs within the next decade. So maybe touch on that. And then also Stephanie's question, uh, sorry, uh, Stephen's question, uh, Stefan's question, sorry, is what is HEMS moat? Because you also wrote on that. Yeah, so I think Teladocs, if I'm going off the top of my head, I think their earnings were like about $2 billion, And I think HEMS was maybe about half of that, or it's, or I'm um, sorry, a quarter of that. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting because when you when you compare two companies, particularly Hims and let's say Teladoc, for example, you see Hims on one hand that has 80% margins, that's growing at an extremely fast pace, that has a very good mobile app and has very good branding. If I were to ask you, you know, is is Teladoc's sort of presence the same? I think it would be clear to somebody that has looked at both that it's not. And that makes a big impact for consumers because it's, it's very easy to go to Hims now instead of Teladoc, just from a branding perspective, ease of use perspective. And the company itself is doing a lot better if you look at things like gross margin, asset turnover ratio, things like that. Um, no, and nobody wants to use an outdated software. I, you know, Austin talked about using Keeps, for example, and going on the website and it was sort of a hassle. You're not going to win over customers on a regular basis doing that. And I don't think any company has, has an app that even comes close to Hims. Um, so that's that's one thing. And when we talk about moat, you know, I see a lot of comments that will say, well, you know, uh, Hims has no moat. Any company can come along and do the same thing. And that's true. And the example that I give is, is with Netflix. Right. When Netflix first started, they were just shipping movies. Anybody could ship movies. People claim this all the time. When Nike first started, you got you had Adidas out there for decades before. Right. It's easy to claim that, hey, this company has got no moat. But you have to understand the moat is an after result of the value proposition. When you provide value to customers in a different, differentiated way from other competitors, that is what's ultimately gonna give you a moat. So for Hims, you look at the value proposition first, not their moat. The value proposition is that it's convenient to use, it's easy, they have a much better app, it's, uh, they have a much more, uh, what's it called? I think, uh, what is it called? Widespread categories versus some of the other ones. And you look at these things and you say, okay, well, that provides HIMS a competitive advantage that will ultimately continue to increase as their infrastructure increases and their moat's going to increase too with that. So you're pretty much saying, so the, the, the go back on the categories, you're referring to the hair loss, sexual wellness, mental health, dermatology kind of Yeah, category. so those are the four main ones now. Yeah. And, and, and they have, actually, somebody asked uh, the CEO this on, on a call. They, they have plans to expand in more categories, but they have so much room to grow in these four that that's not on the menu yet, but that will come as soon as they sort of really take advantage of these four. Gotcha. And I, awesome. I just want to jump in here for a second. I'm going to share my screen um, and, and show you guys here. I, I actually did a whole, you know, stock pitch on, on hymns. Um, to my cash flow freaks, I thought they were just great because they're flipping free cash flow positive next year. But I think this part, this this graph right here is really important, right? Showing you new revenue for the year and then repeat customer revenue. You know, rules over here talking about like providing so much value that these customers keep coming back and they want, you know, they're sticky. I mean, you just see here, like that is a whole lot of stickiness. Uh, it, it's 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 sticky, right? 
And uh, I just, I think that's a really powerful graph and I definitely want people to you know, check that out and see that um, because Hims is, is, is a company that once, and I'm, I'm, you know, that data point, once I'm in, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to leave. I have no reason to leave. The experience is great. And if I can just put on autopilot, I'm in. All right. One last question over here from Christian about uh, more of the technical aspect. And, and Raul, maybe this one's for you because I, I noticed you uh, you pointed out the $4 price target and how that's been support for a while. But Christian says, big gap fill between $4.60 and $5.30. Do you have any comments on that? Uh, I haven't seen that. And I, I, I don't really pay a lot of attention to technicals. I sort of included that in my last article on him just because I did see some interesting things. Uh, from the technical side, but usually I don't pay attention too much for that. That sort of thing is more important if you're looking at short term. You know, when you're looking at the long term, you know, opportunity. I mean, whatever the gap is, is irrelevant when you look at it over many uh, uh, years. For example. Yeah, that's facts. Um, and obviously, just to remind everybody, I mean, you're talking about years out, right? We're talking about this company potentially going uh, free cash flow positive or, or sorry, earnings positive and everything else within the next year or two. Wasn't that what you were saying? The 24, 25 year time frame? Right. That- so they're, yeah. So they're expected, their own company expectations are to be EBIT positive in this quarter. And I think from my own forecast that they will likely be operating uh, profit positive in 2024 and then maybe free ca- free cash flow positive uh, in 2025 some somewhere in that timeline and I think once that happens that's really gonna you know get the ball rolling and, and they can kind of go from there that's the big milestones to get to that point where it's you know positive um, and you know this is a 10 year plus investment it's not one year it's not two years um, but you give it 10 years and then you can you know you I think you'll really start to see, see the difference probably much sooner than that but you got to give it a 10 year timeline. Love it. Austin, any uh, last questions from you before we switch on to this next stock? Yeah, I'm just looking up real quick here. Maybe I'm wrong. I thought they were going to flip free cash flow positive much quicker than 2025. I'm pulling up Wall Street's estimates right now. Uh, yeah, Wall Street's got them making 5 million in free cash flow in 2023. So, uh, who knows? Maybe they flip quicker than we think be incredible force for that stock we'll definitely keep an eye on it so let's go ahead and go on to this next stock i wanted to talk to you about that you also recently wrote an article on uh within the oil and energy space because i think i mean just the other week i was telling austin i think the oil energy space still has room to run personally and i feel like during that interaction you were a little bit surprised by that but you recently wrote this article about devon energy um and i believe you still have a personal buy rating on the stock. So just kind of curious, you want to give us an over a, a, a general overview as to, to why a buy rating and why that stock? Yeah, Devon is a great company. I bought it in, I think, January of 2021. And it was probably my biggest position that whole year. And the energy sector in general is very underrated. I don't know what the number is this year, but I think last year it was, uh, in 2021, I think it was like around 6% a year or 6% um, weighting in the S&P. And that's historically quite small. And so I think there's a lot of room to rise. I think you have a lot of fund managers that sort of, that got burned, you know, 2008, 2009 on the energy stocks when the you know, crude oil went up really high and then it crashed. And maybe they were a little reluctant to sort of open these positions up again. Um, so, but I think as the price of oil keeps going up, they're more and more money is going to start to flow into these energy stocks. That's going to kind of, pull, you know, push them back up. But Devon is a great company. They've got tremendous cash flow. They're paying a great dividend. They don't really have any uh, debt maturing for, I forget the exact year, but I don't think it's for a while. 
Um, and they just, they have the makings of a very good company, shareholder friendly. And really the price of oil is going to be the key. And we can talk about some catalysts that I think are really going to push the price of oil higher later, but that's sort of my general bull case for Devin. It's a great company. Um, got a lot of good things going for it. We see Quant System over here has a buy rating on it. Wall Street analysts have a buy rating and the Seeking Alpha authors overall have a buy rating on it as well. I'm kind of curious though, because I was looking into the financials. I was just going to dive in here. I just had it up a second ago, but it seems like this company over the recent years has been increasing its share count. Um, obviously, as an investor, I'm not always in favor of that. Is that something that worries you at all? Yeah, actually, I think, and I don't remember the exact percentage, but they retired, I think, maybe 4% of shares last year or something. It's in the article, but... Um, you know, you've got stock-based compensation sometimes that, you know, improves the shares. Maybe sometimes they need it to fund capital investments. I don't know the exact number that it's increased over the years. Maybe it's traumatic, maybe it's not. Um, but I think it, as it currently stands, it's, it's in an okay state. Also, they have a share purchase, uh, uh, repurchase program in place that's, you know, going to probably lower those shares as well, too. And is this one of those companies that you see kind of, I think you mentioned they're spending, uh, is it half a billion or a billion or they just spent it on CapEx? I mean, because this is a very weird moment in time, right? For oil and energy companies where do we invest in new infrastructure? It's not going to pay off for five to 10 years. We see this green transitioning happening. I mean, why the conviction if, if they still have to invest in refining and production and discovery? Right. Yeah. That's, and that, I think perfectly leads into sort of like the, the price of oil. They, they did spend um, some money on CapEx. I mean, it's, it's hard to say the exact reason why, I mean, they have all these basins, particularly the Delaware base, maybe they got to, you know, drill out oil. They got to produce something in the meantime, whether it's maybe just to maintain what they're producing and not even necessarily to expand their production, but there's a lot of catalysts for the price of oil to go up, particularly when COVID happened, you had this sudden demand shock where nobody was driving, utilizing oil and the price of oil collapsed. The thing is, is that as soon as that happened, I realized it was a great opportunity to buy oil stocks because demand is sort of like a, a spigot. You can turn it off and on at will, but you can't do that with supply. So once all of a sudden people start driving again and all this demand for oil comes back, well, the supply was already reduced because people weren't using oil and demand comes back like this, but you can't just bring supply back online at the same pace. So there's a bit of a lag. And so you have all this demand for oil, but there's no oil. So the price is going to get pushed up extremely fast. And you saw that during 20, 2021 when the price is going in up to $120, $130 a barrel. And so that was expected. Now, what's I think really going to keep the price elevated, maybe to around $100 uh, a barrel, is number one, you have a lot of oil companies not investing in future CapEx projects. Why? Because like you said, you don't know what the price is going to be in 10 years. You've got all this, you know, you've got political pressure to move to green energy, uh, consumer uh, pressure to move to green energy. You're not going to make these million dollar, billion dollar investments if you have no clue what the price of oil is going to be in 10 years. So the supply is not going to go up very much, but the demand is still going to be there. And so you're going to have a constant upward pressure on price for that one reason. Number two, once we run out of oil in the strategic oil, uh, petroleum reserve, the price is going to get pushed back up again. It's pretty irresponsible to use that reserve for this sort of a situation. Really, the SPR is for you know actual dire times where there's a genuine shortage and we need to supply the country oil. It's not supposed to be, hey, we printed a lot of money, the price of oil went up, now we got to use the SPR. That's very irresponsible. But ultimately, when that goes out, that's the second thing that's going to start pushing the price back up. And just um, in general, the third really big thing is inflation. 
the dollar index is strong right now. I think it's like 103 spot something at the moment. Once the dollar starts to collapse a little bit, not collapse, but once it starts to decrease a little bit, that's when you're really going to see prices start getting pushed up. Um, and so I think those three things are going to push the price of oil a lot higher and it's going to take every oil stock with it. And then the fourth thing is once the price of oil goes up and these stocks start to go up, now you're going to get more fund managers buying these oil stocks and that's going to even further push the price up. So here's my question. And this is coming from a guy who doesn't know Jack about oil or oil companies or any of that stuff. Why Devin and not like Oxy or Chevron or insert name of oil gas company here, right? Yeah, there's so many good oil plays in the market. Devin stuck out to me because they had such a big dividend and I knew they didn't have a lot of debt maturing until I think it's 2030. Don't quote me, but I think I wrote it in the article. Um, so you look at that, you're like, okay, they're producing these massive free cash flows. They don't have any debt. They're buying back their shares. They've got uh, the price of oil is elevated. So that really stuck out to me. And also it was a value play, right? Like Devin at the time that I bought it was 16 bucks. A lot of these other oil stocks were still trading at much higher PEs, you know? Um, so that was, it was a combination of the price that I was getting this stock at versus what I was actually in, what I was getting for that price. But there are a lot of good oil companies, you know. Got it. Got it. I like that. Very cool. Just pulling up the dividend grade scorecard here on Seeking Alpha. Obviously, so we got safety as an A, dividend growth as an A plus, the dividend yield is a D plus, and the dividend consistency is a B plus. Uh, it's looking like payout ratio 57%, dividend yield is 1.24, last announced dividend 18 cents. Is this the company that does the variable dividend? Is that why people Yeah, so there Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think the variable dividend is about 9%. They're basically paying out probably about $5 a share. Gotcha. And do you think that's very sustainable going forward? I I think it will be reduced to a certain degree maybe in the the following few quarters because the price of oil has gone down so their free cash flow is going to go down with it. If the price of oil were to go back to around 100, I, I think that's sustainable. I mean, I don't, it's hard to predict the price of oil. And I think that's what a lot of the, um, you know, free cash flow is dependent on. I mean, I think general trajectory, I think we're headed up probably somewhere around $100 a barrel, but you never know with commodities. It, it, you don't know the time frame. You know, I, I, I have a good feeling of the trajectory. So that dividend will depend on that uh, price of oil because ultimately the free cash flow depends on that price of oil. Right. 8.9% on that yield though. I mean, hello and low yield on costs. That's, that's favorable, man. So you're saying we're talking about the SPR, right? Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They already said they're going to, the government's going to come out and buy, what was it around $70 a barrel? So doesn't that in essence, put the floor of the market in? I mean, right now, as we're recording this, I just pulled it up. Uh, crude oil is at $73 a barrel, roughly 74. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think there are so many factors too that go into play with, with oil. You know, you, you have, it's, it's not just the supply side, but you have the demand side too. And you have countries that are maybe like China. And I know, I think recently started to end some of its lockdowns, but for a long time, you had a lot of Chinese people still locked up, not using oil. So there was a huge lack of demand there that also kind of contributed to the price falling. So there's so many different factors at play. It's hard, you know, I, it's, I, I'm very reluctant to try to predict the, the price of any commodity because your guess is as good as mine, you know, no matter how much I may have read up, you know, because you just never know. But, um, you know, I, I do think sort of bottom line that once we start reducing the supply from the SDR and we start getting some of those other, you know, uh, inflationary pressures start to pick back up, 
I think that the price is ultimately going to circle somewhere around $100 a barrel. Do you have any worries about, I mean, if you read the news about the oil industry and OPEC and what's going on with China buying oil outside of using U.S. dollars, you know, the death of that, they're getting more oil from Russia. That's probably not being transacted in U.S. dollars. I mean, do you have any worries about that affecting the the price? I mean, obviously, it would have to affect the price, right? Yeah, I, I think it's, again, it's, it's so challenging when you, when you think of all the different factors at play and then particularly trying to assign like a monetary effect of each transaction, right? Where it's like, okay, hey, let's say that this country X decides that they're going to buy uh, oil in a different uh, currency. They're going to buy from a different uh, country and then trying to take that information and say, okay, what's the impact going to be on the oil price? I, because it's so challenging to do that, I try to look at it from a, just a very big perspective. What's the supply of oil going to be? What's the demand of oil going to be? If we need oil and we're not drilling for oil because we don't know what the, the price in the future is going to be, you've got sort of a cap on supply, but you don't have that same cap on demand. And so those two forces, no matter what happens in between, whether you've got countries buying from different countries, you've got different currencies going on, whatever, ultimately it's the supply and demand that really matters. And if you look at it from that perspective, I think we're going to have a lot of demand for oil. We're not going to have a lot of supply of oil, and that's going to keep the floor on the price. And really, it's the biggest thing, aside from supply and demand, is the inflationary pressure. As it stands today, anything's possible, but oil is priced in dollars. Once the dollar index starts to fall even a little bit, you're going to see, I think that's really going to be the catalyst for seeing not just oil prices go, but really commodity prices like gold, silver. I think that's going to be the fuel that's really going to start those prices to start to bump up a little bit more. So I don't think it's the granular aspect of who's buying from who. I think it's more of a supply and demand, inflation, and just a big picture thing. So I want to jump in here for a moment. Um, Again, come from a guy who doesn't know jack about oil. I don't invest in three industries because I don't invest in what I don't know. Bank stocks, uh, airplane companies, uh, you know, think about your, your airlines, right? And then oil. I don't know anything about oil. So as someone who's listening right now, kind of a fly on the wall and might not be inspired to learn more about oil, if I want to begin investing into oil companies, what are a couple of things I should be looking at that might be obviously, you know, bottom lines and profit, things like that, right? But like specific to the oil industry, in your opinion, what are some things that I should be looking at as I want to begin researching more about oil companies? Is it is it debt maturity because they're all doing? Is it capex because of refinement? Like what 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 are the maybe call it two or three things that like you're just like oh I always look for these three things when I'm evaluating oil stocks. Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say so. I'll give you um, one bonus one too that's sort of outside of uh, what you had mentioned, but I think learning about it through YouTube, as funny as it sounds, is a really good way to do about it. I literally went on YouTube and I would look up a lot of the things like terminology, what people were saying, and it gives you a very good like overview of any sector, you know, and that's a really good base to have because you want to be familiar with certain terminologies. Um, So that's, I think, a really good thing in general. I do that with almost every single stock. Um, So be resourceful, number one. Love it. Yeah, yeah. Be resourceful. Um, And then the second thing is too, I think a lot of things that apply for other companies and other sectors also still apply for oil companies. So one of the big things that I look for is I don't want to buy an oil company that has a lot of debt because the problem here is that a, you've got interest rates going up, but also that you don't want to buy a company that has to spend a lot to let's say build new equipment, refine a lot of new equipment, 
in an inflationary environment. Now, oil companies have to do that either way. But again, you look at that relative to their free cash flow. And so I think that you want to buy companies, oil companies that don't have a lot of debt and that are producing those big cash flows. So that's a big thing right there. At least then you know you have some safety. Because again, like I said, if you don't have a lot of debt, it's very difficult to go bankrupt. And that acts as a very good floor on the price. Um, you want to look at uh, shareholder um, managements, like uh, how, how they look at how they view uh, returning capital to their shareholders. Do they sound like they actually enjoy doing it? So Devin, for example, you listen to the earnings call. One of the things that they take pride in is how much they return in dividends and buybacks. And that's really important because a lot of people buy these stocks for those reasons, more so than other sectors. So that's another good thing to look for. So you look at debt, you look at cash flow, you look at the uh, management policy towards shareholders, and that gives you sort of at least some safety in that you're collecting a dividend yield and you don't have to worry about the company going bankrupt. Yeah, I love this. Got it. That was great. Thank you. Raul, we'd love to uh, just have you. I, I just pulled this from your article as well. Um, I mean, this is price correlated with adjusted operating earnings. What are the big takeaways from this graph for investors? Yeah, so number one, first and foremost, you'll see that as with any cyclical stock, these earnings go up and down. And so if you catch it at the wrong time, you could lose a fortune. And if you catch it at the right time, you could make a fortune. You'll notice here too, I'm going to kind of get closer to the screen so I can see it. But let's go back to sort of that 0809 timeframe when I was talking about earlier, when you had a lot of uh, funds buying oil stocks, you'll see we kind of peaked here in 09. And then we had this big crash in the price of oil. And like other oil companies, Devin also fell a lot. And then a lot of people got out of oil stocks at this point in time. And the price kind of fluctuated, kind of stayed the same for a long period of time. And then we had a couple other big crashes. Of course, 2020 was, was the biggest one. But from here on out, I think these earnings are going to be accurately reflected. So if you look here at the current day, we've got uh, probably about $9 a share. And in this sort of a graph, the more in the green the stock price is, the more uh, A, margin of safety you have, and B, the more opportunity you have to make a lot of money. And so I think these earnings are going to stay in this area. So to give you some perspective, in 08, I don't remember what the price of crude oil got up to, maybe 140, maybe, I don't know if either of you guys remember, 150, something like that. But it makes sense that if, if, if that was the earnings in 08, when the price of oil was 150, that current day, we should be somewhere close to there if we get to about 100, where the current stock price is. So I think the graph checks out. It makes logical sense, everything, you know, where it's in place. And if the company does well if the oil price goes up to 100 you know i think that price is going to stay where it is um and a little bit higher i don't think it's going to go down much more gotcha all right i got one more question from my side maybe austin has one as well but through talking all of this i think the one thing that we haven't specifically addressed is what's going on with esg right which is obviously i think what is i mean we talked about management maybe having new capex and how long that that plays out and how long it takes them to you know get the return on the investment but what is, what is your perception of, say, the next five years? Because ESG kind of is like falling from the wayside, it feels like a little bit, or maybe that's just me. But like, is ESG over the next few years going to be something that makes oil companies, in your mind, more reluctant going forward? To be quite honest, I'm not that familiar with that, that I would be able to give any sort of helpful advice um, to viewers, and I don't want to mislead anybody in, in that regard. I love the truth. All right. No problem with me. Austin, you have anything from your side? No, I'm just thinking about this ESG question, right? I remember I made a TikTok video about 
three or four months ago about the y'all ETF, right? And it's like anti-ESG. And so, and, and even my dad, my dad's a boomer though, but he's over here talking to me about these, uh, what, oh gosh, what's the recent uh, anti-ESG pump the oil uh, drill? I think it maybe is what, what the ETF was called. I don't know, right? But, you know, I think it's interesting, right? I think on one side, you've got these companies, these oil companies saying, we welcome ESG. We are over here doing all we can to offset that maybe, you know, this catastrophe that we caused or this thing with the environment or this or that. Um, and, and I think they do a really good job of hiring these awesome PR marketing firms to make them just seem like these awesome companies from the ESG perspective. But I also think that, and this is like a recent phenomenon, but that more and more people are like, I don't care about ESG, I care about profits, right? I don't care about this ESG stuff. And I don't know if this was catalyzed by Trump in like in 2016 or 2020, right? I feel like that's kind of when ESG kind of made banner uh, headlines. And I think it really uh, caused people to say yes or no to that. So maybe it was just a coincidence, but I think there's like a, a weird kind of phenomenon happening right now where people are either completely for ESG or they're like, you know what, I don't care about ESG. I'm going to invest in companies that I think are going to turn a profit or, you know, push those free cash flows higher or things of that nature. And, and that might not be a big thing uh, for them. But then from the management side of things, right, that's where it really comes down is, you know, how much do they have to reinvest into make sure that they're aligned with these initiatives that are passed by Congress or things of that nature. Um, Yes, it's a really fun thought experiment, right? Yeah. I love the different opinions, right? And that's why I brought it up. Is It's like, I mean, even Devin Energy, I know, uh, kind of works within the natural gas side of the industry as well. And we really didn't dive into that. So we, may, we stayed more oil. But then you see companies like ExxonMobil, for instance, which at anybody that's listening to the show knows I'm a shareholder, blah, blah, blah. But like they're going into hydrogen as well. And so you started thinking about how all these different factors might come and affect that sector and industry. Uh, just always try to get every opinion I can, which is why I got to ask the question. But Raul, I got to say, I'm going to give you the opportunity. Is there anything else that you think we miss? I mean, how you elaborate on companies and do your research or, or how you find them? I mean, anything else? Because if not, I'm just going to push people back to your Seeking Alpha author profile because I love reading your articles. I mean, anybody that's looking for metrics, valuations, you cover it all. But the floor is yours. Well, I mean, I think the only thing maybe I would have is a sort of a general overview of uh, how to evaluate a stock. And I'll give a, a, a quick 30 second rundown. I think the first thing is really important. You look at what price you're paying. So the PE ratio is so important. If I see something that's 20 or 25 or 30, I'm already not really that interested. You know, I try to find something that's 10 or less. And then you can look at the earnings per share and you want to see that going up every single year. And you have these graphs that, you know, when you plot the earnings, they're, they're like this going straight up. And that's very powerful. So you see consistency, reliability, and that if you're getting it for a cheap price, that's something that's really worth then looking into a lot more. So I think those are the two big things that investors could take away that will immediately screen out a lot of bad stocks and bring it to their attention, a lot of really good stocks. And from there, you just sort of, you know, try to value the company. You can do that different ways. You can do that with the discount cash flow or the easiest way is just looking at the EPS and, you know, attaching a, a market price multiple to it, but that's 12, 15, 20, whatever you think. And that'll give you an idea of the price. And then you can kind of dig a little bit deeper, look at the debt, look at the cash. And that gives you a very good comprehensive overview of stock. And I tell people all the time, you don't have to be a genius to be a good stock market investor. If you did, a lot of people wouldn't have as much money as they do. You just have to have a little bit of common sense, buy good stocks at good or better prices. Don't chase stocks, you know, or buy things out of emotion and you can make a lot of money. Man, giving me Peter Lynch vibes right now. You feel that? Actually, funny. He is my. I'm, that's probably the best compliment I've ever gotten. 
He is probably my favorite uh, investor. I like Peter Lynch a lot more than Warren Buffett. When I listen to Warren Buffett talk, honestly, I don't know what he's talking about half the time, but Peter Lynch does a really good job of making it very easy to understand for people. And um, that's why I really admire him. Plus his run at Fidelity was unbelievable. Totally. I got I to ask you guys. I mean, so, well, maybe just you, Raul, since you're the oil guy. Um, we got the, the chat blowing up over here about XLE, the XLE ETF, right? And then and we got the two mm -hmm. different sides. I mean, obviously, you're paying the expenses for the, the ETF versus Devon Energy and stuff. Uh, what's, what's your, do you have an opinion on XLE? I actually owned XLE at some point. I don't know if it was 2020 or uh, 2021, and it did very well. And I wound up selling it because I, I selling it because I actually used that money then to, to buy more shares of Devon. But you know, I, I think your your opinion on XLE would depend on your opinion of the price of oil. And I hate to sound like a broken record, but it's it's so much dependent on that. Anytime you buy a commodity stock, and I think XLE provides a lot of safety because, like you said, you know, it's an ETF. You're going to get a lot of exposure to different uh, companies that you wouldn't if you just bought one. Um, I haven't looked at what the price is now. I have to go back and look at that. If you have it, you let me know. But um, yeah, eighty-four you know, dollars. That's, that's a great. And a half. What is it? Eight eighty-four. Eighty-four and a half right now. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I think I think I bought it at like probably forty or something, and I sold it very shortly after. But it's it's interesting that it's it's done that well. Um, man, wow, am, am I really the only person who can take like? take advantage of the oil trade. I feel like everyone saw oil coming from a mile away and I'm over here just like twirling my thumbs. I feel so silly for not jumping in on oil back in like 2020. Like when things went negative, like what you did, I just, golly, what was I thinking? Yeah, it's so funny because it's like human nature, right? You, you don't, it's like, you. it's counterintuitive when you see the price bottoming out. It's like, you know, you try to decipher the reason, is it justified, is it not justified? But it's hard to pull the trigger because, you know, it's going down. It's, it's just counterintuitive to human nature. Yeah. Crazy guys. Excellent conversation today. Appreciate you joining us, Raul. Obviously we're going to put a link in the show notes and everywhere for you to get everyone to go follow you on seeking alpha. I mean, your articles really are amazing. I got to say that, like, I'm not just saying that. And I know you don't write as much during the baseball season it makes total sense, but I wish you did personally, just a little, <sighs> I need those articles, but we'll take it when we can get it. Raul, thank you for coming today on the show, sharing your insights, and just recap Hems Health and Devon Energy is what we covered today. Anything else you'd like to say before we let you go? No, I just say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so stoked to be here. Um, thank you for the kind words. Uh, this was a great conversation. And, um, you know, Austin, I'm, I'm sad that you're leaving, but maybe, uh, you know, hopefully if I'm on another time, you will be there too, and uh, we can continue the conversation. Most yep. definitely. I will personally open up my phone right now and follow you on Twitter, assuming you have a Twitter and we can connect there for sure. I do. Yeah. yeah that sounds great. Awesome. Awesome. All right, Raul. Thanks for joining us today. Now, Austin, before we get out of here, man, I mean, it's been a great, what, well, we've been doing this for what, six months now something like that. Has I mean, it been six months, really that long. Oh man. Time flies. If it has been, geez, you're right. It has. I mean, we started doing this in what, like, September-ish, maybe? August. Oh, it's like July, I thought. July? Yeah, oh we've had gosh. a great group of people joining us week after week. Everybody that's been here is live with us every Wednesday from 12 to 1. We love you guys. We appreciate you guys coming to hang out. I mean, the reoccurring names we see in the chat, we definitely notice. We read all of your chats. 
Um, just a reminder, if you need more Austin in your life, Cashflow Freaks on Seeking Alpha, he is there. You can always chat with him, talk to him, go follow that $2 million investment portfolio, which I know I'm personally going to be following because I think it's a great idea and also makes total sense, right? Like (laughs) you invest for your money to make money. And I think it's a great setup. So obviously everybody make sure you stay in touch with Austin. You can find him on TikTok, on Twitter, seeking out. I mean, you're everywhere, dude. You're everywhere. I I appreciate it. And that's the thing too. Like it's, it's, it's $2 million portfolio for me, but maybe that's a $200,000 portfolio for you or a $20,000 goal for you, right? Like this is a journey. There's a long journey. We're all doing this together and it's all about transparency. It's about education, reflection, and I'm excited to, to welcome everyone with open arms and uh, have a good time over the next several years doing it. I tell you what, man, I'm going to miss having you here on the show every week, but we are going to totally have you back on and I can't wait to follow I'm the journey. Pumped. We're going to, I'm going to ask you probably every time, like, where is the investment portfolio at? We might, <laughs> little tidbits, might just like do a little additions like that. But uh, all right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get on out of here. Happy new year, everyone. Thanks for joining us in the investing, investing experts podcast. And we'll see you next episode. I'm Daniel Snyder. I'm Austin Hankwitz. I will see you guys here very, very soon. And don't forget to leave a rating and drop that 100 emoji. Because if you drop the 100 emoji, we know you're an insider. We know you've been rocking with us for a while. And uh, I appreciate reading them, man. I love it. So thanks, everyone. And I will see you all here very, 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 very soon. Uh, it just won't be in next episode. <laughs> see you guys later. All right. Thanks again, Raul. And Josh, let's get on out of here. <laughs>